0: heard of a man by the name of Simon Greenleaf. Does that ring a bell to you? Probably not. Uh, But in his day, he was an important and influential fellow. Simon Greenleaf was one of the principal founders of the Harvard Law School back in the early 1800s. And so he was quite a well-known man and, and uh, very highly respected in legal affairs. He was an attorney of top notch, Simon Greenleaf. Simon Greenleaf was not a believer. And actually he was rather anti- antagonistic toward Christianity. And so he, he believed that he could disprove the whole thing. And so he set out to do that. And he had a specific methodology in mind. Simon Greenleaf believed that if he could destroy the credibility of the eyewitnesses to the New Testament events, that he could destroy Christianity itself, take away the eyewitness testimony, prove that the eyewitnesses couldn't be trusted, and he believed that he could destroy or ruin the cause for Jesus Christ as the risen Savior. And so he said, to do that, he began a process, uh, a, a study, an analysis uh, with that intention in mind. His story is like some others that you've probably heard of. Instead of proving that Christianity was false, he actually proved to himself that it was true. And he became a believer in Jesus Christ, uh, and he believed that Jesus was, in fact, resurrected from the dead. And so, He wrote an essay about his approach to this study. And for just a few minutes here this morning in this Bible class hour what I'd like to do is consider just some very brief excerpts from what he wrote uh, as he approached this question, the eyewitnesses, can their credibility be trusted? And we want to look at that this morning. This is really an important thing for us because we don't often consider it this way, but our faith Is absolutely dependent upon the testimony of those eyewitnesses. Uh, if If you took away what they testified to we wouldn't have anything to base our faith upon. We weren't there, we didn't see it ourselves. And so we're very dependent upon what they saw and thus reported to us. And so the trustworthiness of these eyewitnesses is really a critical factor. I believe Simon Greenleaf was right. Take away the eyewitnesses. You've destroyed the very basis of our faith. Uh, And so it's important for us to know that we can trust what they reported to us. And We're going to look at Simon Greenleaf's essay briefly uh, in order to study that subject. I want to stop here just for a minute to thank you for inviting me to be with you in this Gospel meeting here at Oak Mountain. I've been looking forward to it. We've visited here a number of times in the past when we'd be going to Florida on vacation uh, and uh, always appreciated the opportunity to be with you, but especially this week to be able to be here and, and join together in this Gospel meeting. Uh, as, as Bob already mentioned, if there's any question about anything you hear, uh, please bring that to my attention. Uh, and if, even to the point if you might disagree with something that is said, please say so. And we'll, we'll sit down and get our Bibles open. We'll make sure we've got it figured out correctly, and we believe we can do that. Thanks for inviting me to be with you for this gospel meeting this week. All right, so Simon Greenleaf used an approach in his analysis in which he suggested that a lawyer who was going to call a witness in a, in a trial of any sort, uh, uh, a, a lawyer who was calling a witness would want the witness to pass a five-part test. And here's, here's the way he presented that. He said the credit due to the testimony of witnesses depends upon firstly their honesty, secondly their ability, thirdly their number and the consistency of their testimony, fourthly the conformity of their testimony with experience, and fifthly the coincidence of their testimony with collateral circumstances. So let's just take that and follow his five-point analysis. In other words, a good witness has to pass all five of these tests. The first of those tests is their basic honesty. And here's the way that he went on to explain that. He said, in the absence of circumstances which generate suspicion, every witness is presumed credible until the contrary is shown, the burden of impeaching his credibility lying upon the objector men ordinarily speak the truth when they have no prevailing motive or inducement to the contrary. These witnesses went against all their worldly interest, They could expect nothing but contempt, opposition, revilings, bitter persecutions, stripes, imprisonments, torments, and death. Yet this faith they zealously did propagate, and all these miseries they endured." Well, as we'll see in looking at some quotes from Simon Greenleaf, he he speaks a good bit like a lawyer does. You know, lawyers have their own language. We call it legalese, and sometimes it's not like English almost, Uh, but we can decipher what he had to say here. And I think his explanation here is pretty easy to understand. Basically people tell the truth unless they have some motive to do otherwise. Uh, For instance, uh, as you were speaking to someone coming into the assembly this morning, if there was some comment made about the weather, you know, I think it might rain this afternoon, someone says. Uh, The forecast, I saw the forecast, I saw James Spann on the TV, and he said, it's going to rain. Well, you would assume that that fellow's telling you the truth. I mean, he would not have any reason to lie about what James Spann said when he forecasted the weather for today. And there's no reason to lie about the weather. And so we just assume people are telling the truth. But on the other hand, if, if they have some reason or motive to lie, they might. They might. You know, several years ago, I bought a used car. And the guy presented it to me as just top-notch, just exactly what you'd want in a good used car. I believed him, unfortunately, and I literally literally had no more than gotten home until I realized the transmission was just completely shot in this car, and I'm going to have to spend the money to get it fixed. Well, that guy lied to me, but the reason he lied was he had a motive, right? He wanted to offload this car. He knew he had a problem, and he didn't want to spend the money to fix it, and so he misrepresented it to me. I guess that's maybe a kind way to say what he did. He just out and out lied to me, but he had a motive for his lying. He wanted to get rid of that bad car, right? So I had to fix it. I'm still driving that car, by the way, but it's got a new transmission in it after I got it. But he had a reason to lie. Uh, So I think we understand what Simon Greenleaf is saying, but he says, now think about these witnesses. He said, would they be lying? What did they have to gain by lying? They They didn't benefit, they didn't prosper. Their lives were not made easier by virtue of what they were testifying to. Actually, their lives were made much worse, harder, harsher. They suffered tremendously because of the testimony they were giving. They didn't have any motive to lie. Uh, And so, he says, you have to accept that they must have been honest men because they told what they told even when it brought upon them severe persecutions. They continued to tell the same story. In Acts chapter 4, verse 18, beginning, the Jewish council called them, that is, certain of the apostles, and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. And so here's this very powerful Jewish council. These are the same men, by the way, who not that much earlier. Had been responsible for the death of Jesus on the cross of Calvary. They're the ones who demanded that the Romans crucify Jesus. These are powerful men. They can do you a lot of harm if they choose to do so. And so how does Peter and John respond to them when they said, don't, we want you to stop this, we don't want you to talk about this anymore, just hush. Said, we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. That in itself speaks clearly to the honesty of these men. They had no motive to be lying about what they were doing. They had to be telling the truth. In the next chapter of Acts, they're called before the council again in Acts chapter five, verse twenty-eight. The council called them, saying, Did not we straightly command you that ye should not teach in this name? The apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree, and we are his witnesses of these things. See their emphasis. We saw it. We witnessed it. We're telling you what we ourselves saw. That text goes on in verse 40. When they had called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. And so here they had actually suffered a a physical persecution. They they were beaten for their testimony. If they were lying, don't you think at least at that point they would say, we better better quit telling this lie. This this is not working well for us. In fact, everything bad is happening to us. We, We probably should stop saying these things that are not true. They didn't do that. They kept right on preaching and teaching about Jesus. They certainly were honest men. The Apostle Paul who himself also was a, a witness of the resurrected Jesus, Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 beginning verse 8, we are troubled on every side yet not distressed, we are perplexed yet not in despair, persecuted but not forsaken, cast down but not destroyed. Notice, we also believe and therefore speak. Paul why do you keep doing this? Because we believe it. We know it's true. We believe and therefore speak. In Philippians chapter three, beginning verse seven, Paul said, But what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ, yea, doubtless, and I count all things but lost, for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. Paul said there's a certain indication that Paul was a very powerful, influential, and very likely wealthy Jew before his conversion to Christianity. And he said he gave that all up. He 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 put it all aside. He sacrificed it all because he believed in the risen Savior. Jesus, as we said, and he was an eyewitness to Jesus and as he was after he had been resurrected. So you got to say this first test, the Simon Greenleaf says a good witness got to pass these tests. Certainly concerning that first test of honesty, you have to believe they were honestly telling what they believed to be so based upon what they said they had personally witnessed. They passed that test with flying colors. Secondly, he says, they have to pass the test of ability. Here's the way he described that. He said, the ability of a witness to speak the truth depends upon opportunities which he has had for observing the fact the accuracy of his powers of discerning, and the faithfulness of his memory in retaining the facts once observed and known. It is always to be presumed that men are honest and of sound mind and of the average or an ordinary degree of intelligence. This is not the judgment of mere charity, it is also the uniform presumption of the law." And so basically this test again I think is fairly understandable Were these eyewitnesses in a position to have had opportunity to see the things happen that they are reporting about? Basically, were they there? And then, are they smart enough to be able to recognize what they're seeing? And then, do they have sufficient intelligence and memory to be able to recall it when called upon to do so? are they able are they are they witnesses who have that sort of ability and in regards to these witnesses of the resurrection we have to say positively yes look at what peter said in second peter chapter one beginning verse 16 peter of course one of those witnesses one of those eyewitnesses peter says here he says for we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of the lord jesus christ now i want to stop there for a minute And I want you to observe this first phrase. He says, we have not followed cunningly devised fables. I think, of course, Peter's speaking by inspiration here, but I believe Peter would have understood that there might be some who would say to him, Peter, what kind of a gullible guy are you anyway? You know, somebody told you a a tall tale, this big fabricated story, uh, all contrived and involved in, and Peter, you were foolish enough to listen to this kind of tale that, that couldn't possibly be true. Peter, you've just, you've just been gullible. You've just, somebody has taken you in. I think Peter might have been aware that such a criticism could be offered, and so he starts out here saying, we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. Notice again his emphasis, I was there, I saw it myself. He says, for he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. Peter says we were there. Now he's speaking here, he's not talking about the resurrection, he's talking about the transfiguration, right? But notice how he says, I'm not telling you some tale that someone passed on to me. I saw it with my own eyes. I was there. And so, when Peter Peter says, when I'm telling you about the life of Jesus and the things that Jesus did, I'm telling you about things that I personally saw. I'm not giving you second-hand testimony. I'm a first-hand witness of Jesus. I was with him throughout his life and ministry. Peter could testify as an eyewitness. The Apostle John said effectively the same thing in 1 John chapter 1, beginning verse 1, that which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life, that which we have seen and heard declare we unto you. And so you get the idea that the Apostle very much wanted to stress their eyewitness status. And they were certainly able witnesses. They they had full opportunity to see it. They could recognize what they were seeing. They could later recall what they had seen. And all of that made them worthy witnesses. So they passed that test with flying colors as well. The third test of a good witness is their number and consistency of their testimony. Now, here's the way Greenleaf explained what he means by that test. He says, in a number of concurrent testimonies, there is a probability distinct from that which may be termed the sum of the probabilities resulting from the testimony of the witnesses. This probability arises from the concurrence itself. Such a concurrence should spring from, that such a concurrence should spring from chance is impossible. There remains no cause but the reality of the fact. Uh, maybe, Greenleaf, you getting into his legalese a little bit here. But I think, again, we can understand what he's saying. What he's saying is if you, if you have a trial, there's, a, there's an advantage to multiple witnesses. That's just basically what he's saying. So let's say that this guy is, is on trial for murder. And in the, in the course of the trial, the prosecuting attorney calls forth one eyewitness who says, I was there, I saw it with my own eyes. Would would that be helpful in a trial? Well, absolutely, yes. I mean, you could you can you can convict a person of murder without any eyewitnesses, but if you've got an eyewitness, man, that really fortifies your case, right? He says but his point here is what if you had two witnesses? Oh man, two witnesses way better than one. In fact, it's more than twice as good. It's four or five times better. Two witnesses way better than one. What if you had Three witnesses. Man, the power of your case is not growing in a straight line. The power of your case is growing exponentially. The more witnesses you have, the better, right? Uh, and, And the more witnesses you have, the more it multiplies the power of your case. Now, obviously, all of these eyewitnesses have to be testifying to the same thing. Their testimony has to be in agreement. You can't have one witness say one thing and another witness say something different. If you, you got, if you got multiple witnesses, so long as their testimony agrees with one another, the more witnesses you've got, the better. We understand that, don't we? That's not hard to understand. All right, how, how many eyewitnesses do we have of the resurrection? Well, we already talked about Peter and John and Paul. But the other apostles, 12, maybe a few other, maybe maybe 50, 100, no. I know you all are way ahead of me on this. We've got more than 500 eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, don't we? In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the apostle Paul lists these. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning verse 3, For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that he was, noticed, seen of above 500 brethren at once. Notice, and he says, of whom the greater part remained to this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. So there were more than 500 witnesses, Paul says, of the resurrection. And I think it's interesting that he notes, of whom the greater part remained to this present. The, the reports of the resurrection were circulated within the, within the lifetime of the people who testified to having seen it. And I think Paul here is basically saying, go ask them yourself if you want to. There's most, a few have died. Most are still alive. Go ask them yourself if you want to get their testimony. You know, there's a false claim that the resurrection was never even spoken of until several centuries later. And that's just not true. Paul says, no, that, uh, there were more than 500 witnesses and most of them are still alive. You can go check it out for yourselves if you want to. How, think about this one for a minute. How, how would this work in a courtroom today? And so let's go back to that. We got this guy on trial for murder. And uh, so the prosecuting attorney calls in a witness and they go through the process of identifying, the, the guy has to identify himself and, and so forth and take the witness stand. And so the, the prosecutor says, tell me what you saw and he tells it. So, so that witness is dismissed. He calls in another witness from out in the lobby and, the, and, and another witness comes in and, and he does exactly the same thing, tells exactly the same story. He's dismissed, a third witness, a fourth, a fifth, a sixth, a seven, eight, nine, ten witnesses come forward and every one of them is telling exactly the same thing. And so at some point, maybe, maybe the prosecuting attorney calls the 11th witness and he comes and you know what's gonna happen at some point? The judge is gonna say, Mr. Prosecuting Attorney, how how many witnesses do you intend to call anyway? He said, I got more than 500 people lined up out there in in the lobby. You know what the judge is gonna say? He's he's gonna say, no, no, we're not gonna do that. We, we, We get your point. Lots of people saw this happen. The judge wouldn't even let that many witnesses testify. It would be unnecessary. We have overwhelming eyewitness testimony concerning the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the testimony agrees. All of the witnesses are telling the same story. It's not one saying one thing and another one saying something different. They all agree. And so, again, you'd have to think that, that this third test, that the number and consistency of their testimony, they passed that test with flying colors also. All right, the fourth Test is the conformity of their testimony with experience. Now here, Simon Greenleaf says, here is a potential red flag. Here's a potential problem to accepting the testimony of these witnesses. Here's the way he described that. He says, the title of the witnesses to full credit for veracity would be readily conceded by the objector if the facts they relate experience. And on this circumstance an argument is founded against their credibility. Miracles say the objectors are impossible. So here's here's a test that we got to work on a minute because there's potential they could fail this test because they were claiming a miracle. The resurrection itself, a a, a mighty notable miracle. They're supposedly telling us they saw a miracle. Let me see if I could illustrate it this way. I'm, I'm driving down here yesterday evening. And uh, I'm hoping I can get all the way in on the gas I've got in my tank, but it is pretty clear. By the way, this is a made up story, okay? <laughs> but, but I decided right in downtown Birmingham, I, I just gotta get uh, some gas, I'm not gonna make it. And so I pull off the interstate there and, and uh, maybe kind of a rough area of town and, and I'm, I'm pumping the gas into my car. And while I'm pumping gas into the car, a man comes up behind me, sticks a gun in my back and says, give me your wallet, uh, your charge cards, your cash, all your valuables. And I comply, hand the stuff over, and he turns and runs away. Now, does that sound like a story that you could believe? Well, unfortunately, yes. I mean, those kind of things happen with increasing frequency in our day and age. It would not be hard to believe that, that you could be held up, be robbed, right? Now, let me tell a different story. So I'm driving through, coming through Birmingham, and I realized I've stopped, got to stop and get some gas, and so I'm pumping gas. A guy comes up behind me, sticks a gun in my back, says, give me all your valuables, your cash, your credit cards, and so forth, and I do. And then he turns, and he flaps his arm like a bird, and he flies away. <laughs> you, said, you said what? <laughs> you said what, he flew away like a bird? You expect me to believe that? I don't believe that for a minute. The fact of the matter is, I don't believe anything you told me. Because if you'd lie about that, you'd lie about anything. I just don't believe that, right? Wouldn't that be the normal reaction? All right, uh, Simon Greenleaf says that's the problem we got here, because these eyewitnesses are reporting that they saw multiple miracles, especially the miracle of the resurrection. How do we deal with that? That's a fair question. Actually, if you think about it, that is really a fair question. How can we believe them when they were telling us about things that we don't see? We don't see miracles today. And and so how can we believe them when they say they saw miracles? Well, here's here's the approach that I think that we would want to use in answering that objection. Let me take you to account uh, early in the preaching work of Jesus in Mark chapter two. I think you remember this. Jesus said to the sick of the palsy, this was the incident, by the way, where some men came carrying a man who was sick of the palsy, I think newer translation says he was paralytic, he, he wasn't able to walk. And they, they, they were trying to get him to Jesus, but when they got to the house where Jesus was, there was such a crowd of people that they couldn't get, they couldn't get him in. And so you remember they went up on the roof of the house and tore the roof back and let him down. That's this, that's this, I always wondered how the, I wonder how the guy felt whose roof that was that got torn up. But uh, th- that's, this, that's this situation. And so, uh, Jesus said to the sick of the palsy, this paralytic man, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why doth this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? Now, I want you to stop there for a minute to consider their objection. They actually are making a proper objection. What if I came in here, you all don't know me, but I come in here this morning, and I, when a few minutes after I get up here, I start saying, I forgive your sins. I forgive your sins. I forgive your sins. Don't you think that your reaction to that would be, what, who does this guy think he is anyway? Who does this guy think he is? He come in here and forgive sins. Nobody can forgive sins, but God only. Isn't that the objection that you would offer? And you'd be doing right. You'd be properly objecting, and that's actually what's happening here. And so I believe those who observe and were in observance of this were properly objecting when Jesus said, "I can forgive sins." And so the text goes on. Jesus responds, Whether is it easier to say to the sick of the palsy, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and take up thy bed and walk. But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise, take up thy bed, and go thy way into thy house. And immediately he arose and took up his bed and went forth before them all, insomuch knows that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw it on this fashion. And so... The, the objectors here who objected properly initially when they saw the miracle were convinced this is the Son of God. He does have such power. The miracle proved His power as the Son of God, right? But my point here is here are these people who were initially turned off by what He said, but when they saw the real miracle before their very eyes, they had to be amazed. They, their objection was resolved. They saw it. They saw such a miracle. In John chapter 11, verse 45, uh, notice again, uh, this is following Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. It says, many of the Jews which had seen the things that Jesus did believed on him, but some of them went their way to the Pharisees and told them the things that Jesus had done. Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees at council, saying, What do we? For this man doeth many miracles. If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. Here are the, here are the very people who ultimately would be responsible for calling out for Jesus' uh, crucifixion, rather, for, for demanding his crucifixion. But even they had to admit, this man doeth many miracles. Isn't that amazing? And so the objectors. Also, It wasn't just the friends or the disciples of Jesus who said He worked miracles. Even the people who hated Him and ultimately called out for His crucifixion, they also acknowledged the miracles. In Acts chapter 4 concerning the miracles that the Apostles themselves worked. In Acts chapter 4 verse 13, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. And beholding the man which was healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? Notice, for that, a, that indeed a notable miracle hath been done by them is manifest to all them that dwell in Jerusalem." Notice, we cannot deny it. And so these were people who wanted to deny the reality of the miracles that were happening all around them. And they admitted that they could not deny the miracles. And so, to this fourth test, remember Simon Greenleaf is saying a good witness got to pass all five of these tests. To this fourth test, there is a a reasonable question to ask, and it has to do with the fact that what they're testifying to involves miracles, and miracles just don't normally happen. But when when we take that apart a little bit, we realize you're going to have to accept the testimony of the miracles because it wasn't just these men who were saying miracles happened. Even the enemies of Christ and His cause also admitted the miracles. And so that, that resolves that conflict if you think about it that way. All right, the fifth and final test of a, of a good witness is this one. Fifthly, the coincidence or coincidence of their testimony with collateral circumstances. And that that maybe is a little harder to understand but I think we can understand how Greenleaf went on to explain what he meant here. He says, a false witness will not willingly detail any circumstance in which his testimony will be open to contradiction, nor multiply them where there is danger of his being detected by comparison of them with other accounts. In the testimony of true witnesses, there is a visible copiousness in the detail. The more largely the narrative partakes of these details, the further it will be found removed from all suspicion of contrivance or design." All right, so what he's telling us here is that a false witness, somebody who's lying, if you've got a witness on the, on the witness stand and he's a liar and he's not telling the truth, He does not want to give you any details. The fewer details, the better, because he knows that if he gets found out, it will be because of some detail, some some detail matter. And so he doesn't want to give a lot of details because he knows the more details he tries to provide, the greater chance that he's gonna be proven to be lying about what he is saying. He says, on the other hand, if somebody is telling the truth, They'll be glad to tell you anything that, that you ask. They'll answer any question you've got, they'll give you any detail that you're interested in. How many, I, I know the younger folks here will not remember, some of you who are older will remember the old television show Columbo. You remember the old television show Columbo? Peter Falk was the, the detective Columbo. And uh, he was just sort of a bumbling fellow, you know. He, he, he always showed up in an old beaten up car. Every, every, Every show of the Columbo series was a murder that was being investigated. Columbo was a police detective and he would be assigned to investigate this murder. But the way that show was written, the audience, us, when we watched, we knew right from the start who the guilty culprit was. We knew who the murderer was. And so as the show unfolded, it was Columbo trying to expose this guy to be guilty. And so. Columbo shows up on the scene in his old rattletrap of a car. He gets out and he's got a crumpled up trench coat on, you know, just all wrinkled and he looks just completely disheveled. He's got an unlit cigar hanging out of his mouth and, and, uh, and he shows up on the scene, I mean, come on. And so he's talking to the guy who we know is the murderer and he asks him some questions and, and so Columbo says, "Oh." Uh, thank you, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. thank you so much. And he starts to walk away and he just gets a few feet away and he, oh, 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 he comes back. And, I just got one more question. Said, and the guy, and, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. He starts to walk away again. And again, he turns back. Oh, I, oh, I just thought of one, I just got to ask you one more thing. And you can see the guy that he's questioning, you, you can see him getting annoyed. You can see him getting frustrated with this, bumbling police detective Columbo for asking all these questions. Why is that guy getting annoyed? Because he's guilty. And he doesn't want these details to be brought out, right? He, 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 the, the fewer details that are discussed, the better for him. And as that show worked, always it was some minor detail that he said that would turn out to prove his guilt. And so a guilty party, a liar, does not want to give details. On the other hand, as Simon Greenleaf uh, suggested, if a person telling the truth, they got nothing to hide. They'll tell you anything you want to know. Well, what about these? I went the resurrection of Jesus. In John chapter 21, John says, there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which I, if they should be written, every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. John says, we've got so many details. We've tried to provide you a lot of details. There's so many details. I mean, libraries could be filled with information. Uh, In chapter 20 of John, he says, many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and the believing you might have life through his name. John says, I've written a lot. There's a lot more that could be said. All of this is being provided to you for the purpose of establishing your faith so that you can believe and have life through his name. In Acts chapter 1, Luke, now Luke, of course, was not one of the apostles and was not an eyewitness of the resurrection. But Luke was in close company with those who were eyewitnesses. And notice what he says here in Acts chapter 1, beginning verse 1, the former treatise, talking about the gospel of Luke, the former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of, notice, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up. There was never any hesitance on the part of the disciples to discuss all the details surrounding Jesus and his life and his work and his teachings and his miracles and his resurrection. They never tried to hold back any details. And that being the case, then they passed that fifth test of their willingness to engage in details. And so there's that five part test. Simon Greenleaf says, if you're an attorney and you're going to call a witness in a trial, a witness needs to pass these five tests. And they do, the, the eyewitnesses of, the, of Jesus, of His miracles, specifically of His resurrection, they pass this test. Here's the way Simon Greenleaf concluded. He said, the question is the veracity or truthfulness of the witnesses and the, and the credibility of their narratives. A lawyer examining the testimony of the witnesses by the rules of his profession in order to ascertain whether if they had thus testified on oath in a court of justice would find them entitled to credit receiving their testimony as being all that members of the legal profession would desire. Simon Greenlee says they passed the test. Their testimony can and should be believed as we said, Greenleaf himself became a believer in the resurrected Jesus. I don't know that he ever became a true New Testament Christian. I'm not saying that. But I am saying he became such a one who believed that all that said concerning Jesus as the risen Savior is true and can be believed. As we said at the outset, our faith is dependent upon this testimony. And I, I hope it is to you comforting as it is to me to know we can trust their testimony. You know, sometimes people today suggest, you all, you all are kind of foolish, you know, to believe all this about Jesus and the resurrection and all that stuff. You, you all just let the wool be pulled over your eyes. No, no we haven't. We've considered the evidence and there's powerful evidence and we have basis for our faith and don't let anyone ever challenge you uh, in a contrary fashion. Thanks for your good attention, what we've had to say.